all. Good morning. It's really good to be with you. My name is Reese, like Simon said earlier, and uh, I love new life. I love being with you. I love getting to preach and hang out with you, and this morning's going to be special. So we're going through a sermon series on Philippians, through Philippians, and this morning, we're, we're going to read the, the text in a second, but I'm going to give you a little bit of time to open your Bibles and get there. We are going to be in Philippians chapter 3, starting at verse 12 and going to chapter 4, verse 1. The text is also going to be on the slide, so we'll be there. I'm using a clicker, like a, like a TED Talk speaker. So if I'm behind or if you notice that things are whatever, just yell at me. This is family environment, so just say, Reese, I'm, I'm lost. Um, Friedrich Nietzsche, the 19th century German philosopher, he said this. He said, the essential thing in heaven and earth is that there should be long obedience in the same direction. There, thereby results, and has always resulted in the long run, something which has made life worth living. This is the same guy who said God is dead. But he's got an idea here that's worth paying attention to. Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher, he said this. Purity of heart is to will one thing. Purity of heart is to will one thing. Uh, I was enthralled in 2020 by the documentary that came out on Netflix called The Last Dance. It followed Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls uh, through their 90s uh, NBA dominance. And I, I'm a huge basketball fan, but I didn't grow up in the 90s. And so for me, this was kind of a, an introduction to what uh, all the myth was about, the, the fanfare, the legend around Michael Jordan. And so as I was walking, watching this documentary, I found it fascinating just seeing Michael Jordan, his singular obsession with being the best, with being the greatest that there is and ever will be. And there's one episode of the whole series that stood out to me. And it was an episode in which we kind of got to track with some of Michael Jordan's teammates and how they experienced him. And as Michael Jordan's intensity grew and grew, and he was going after this goal, he became obsessed with being the greatest. It rubbed his teammates the wrong way. And there's a, at the very end of this episode, we see the cost of this singular obsession on this goal where Michael Jordan, he's weeping because people lost trust in him. They grew angry with him and hurt by him, by his anger and intensity. And we see this athlete weeping at the cost of this obsession. Paul, the apostle, he writes to this Philippian church that he deeply loves 
And in this morning's text, he challenges the church to press and strain with intensity towards a goal. Yet what's different is, is that in pursuit of this goal, there is way more to gain than there is to lose. And so we're going to read Philippians chapter 3, starting at verse 12. And again, the text is going to be on the screen. There we go. Nice. Verse 12. Not that I have already obtained all this, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. There we go. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. And their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in this way. Stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. Here's where we're going this morning. Again, I don't know if you were here with me last time. I mentioned that every time I do a slide that has a list, I meant to go one, two, three, but it always gives me one, one, one. So I can do math, just a heads up, but just, I don't know why it does it. Here's the roadmap. We noticed Paul touch on this Goal, pressing on towards a goal. That's the main theme here. But there are these three sub-themes that Paul touches on. These are them. First, he doubles down on this active pursuit of the goal. Second, he argues for us to follow constructive examples in a world of destructive examples. And then third, there's this beautiful call to steadfastness. And then I'll end with a final thought and encouragement for you. But before we dive into the rest of the, the teaching, why don't we just pray together once more? Holy Spirit, 
You are welcome in this place. Maybe for some people in this room, haven't taken a deep breath all week. So right now, we just inhale your grace on our lives. And we just exhale the burden of shame or guilt or sin that has been plaguing us all week. Lord, we give you all of our anxiety, all of our stress that we're holding in our bodies. And as we read this text, this portion of this beautiful letter that you wrote to the Philippians, we acknowledge that our Christian journey, it really is a strain. It's a run. But we know that the goal is beautiful. Lord, as we go through this teaching and through this scripture, would you help remind us that this is, there, there really is a world full of bad examples, bad models for living. Would you give us the strength to resist those and embrace you as the, the ultimate example? Keep us steadfast and firm in you, Lord. And it's in your name we pray, amen. I'm actually going to go, first point, active pursuit of the goal. I'm going to go back, and we're going to go to verse 12 here. And I want to read this again. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. So, a couple questions as we look at this particular text. So, first, what is the goal? What is the goal? As we take a look at what Paul has already written in Philippians, and you can do that yourself as you open your Bible. His goal is pretty clear. Paul's goal in life, his singular goal, is to be with Christ. As you read through all of Paul's work, all of his letters and his theology, that is what Paul is all about. He wants to be with Christ. Paul knows that he can seek Jesus because he has been found by Jesus. Paul can know Jesus because he has been known by Jesus. Paul can take hold of Jesus. He can apprehend Jesus because he himself has been apprehended by Jesus. Paul wants life with Jesus because Jesus has given him all life. And so the next question we think of is, what does it mean to press on? Paul uses this twice, press on, press on. What does it mean? Those who study Paul and his writing style 
this language, it can quickly make sense of what Paul means to press on. He's using marathon running language here. And if you're like me, your heart just sinks. Marathon running, really? Theologian named Fred Craddock says this. Paul portrays himself as the least relaxed, most demanding posture he knows, as a runner in a race. His language is vivid, tense, repetitious, pressing, stretching, pushing, straining. In those words, the lungs burn, the temples pound, the muscles ache, the heart pumps, perspiration rolls. I love this word, stick to Did anyone know that was a word? I recently found that stick to It's my new favorite word. I think that's, if we, if we really met Paul, I think that would be his favorite word too. Stick to This is what Paul is realizing about the Christian journey. Stick to For the Philippians, he's trying to paint as accurate a picture possible of what discipling under Jesus actually looks like. Stick to It's a long run. I don't know this by experience, but for those who have maybe run a marathon or a half marathon, you can make sense of this better than I can. It's a press. A long run. All with the finish line in mind. And that's why I love this phrase that uh, Eugene Peterson borrowed from Nietzsche. Long obedience in the same direction. It's kind of how he sums up the discipleship journey under Jesus. That's his best stab at describing what it's like. So we come to know and imitate Jesus over long years of obedience, not instantly. This is what Eugene Peterson says in 1980, and it puts things into perspective for us now. He says, we assume that if something can be done at all, It can be done quickly and efficiently. Our attention spans have been conditioned by 30-second commercials. Again, he wrote this in 1980. Life has changed. We need to leverage the time that we have to continue this press, this marathon under Jesus. And Paul says, forgetting what's behind and straining ahead. He knows exactly what he's doing here. Uh, for, for the Jewish people in this time, there was a tendency to remain in the past. And it was the same for people who lived under Roman rule as well. Uh, for the Jews, it was looking back at the Exodus and past glory and how Yahweh brought them out of slavery and into freedom. It was always looking towards the past and celebrating it. For, for the Romans, it was military prowess and victory. Always looking at, here's what Rome has done. Here's what Rome has done. Our tendency today is to remain in the past. We are an uber-nostalgic generation. We love to sit in the past and dwell in the past, soak it all up. Paul says, forgetting what's behind, strain ahead. That's hard work. That's difficult stuff. But resurrection life in Jesus is worth everything that we have. And for you marathon runners in the room, you know how sweet that finish line is. 
for maybe those who, who are avid hikers, you know how beautiful it is when you get to that stunning vista, that view at the top of the mountain after you've been grunting and sweating up a trail for like three hours or more. Just imagine what Paul is talking about when it comes to resurrection life in Jesus. Forget what's behind, strain ahead. There's something beautiful in store. Okay, Paul's second sub-theme. He wants us to follow constructive examples in a world of destructive examples. I just want, to, I want us to, to go right to verse 15 again, and we're going to read till verse 21. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Verse 17. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. Just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For, as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. And their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Paul's writing here to the Philippians, it's profound, it's sharp, and it cuts right to the listeners. There's a call here for Paul to imitate uh, for the Philippians to imitate Paul and his leaders. I remember when I first read Philippians and I, and I read this text, I wasn't really sure about what Paul meant here. There was something presumptuous that, um, and like, who is Paul to assume that we would want to imitate him? It seems, it seems um, almost arrogant. We live, especially today, and we read these words, and sometimes we, we can react to them. We live in a bit of a uh, tall poppy syndrome society, meaning that um, when one person kind of grows above the rest and maybe argues that their way of life is worth living or following, we tend to cut off the tall poppy so that it evens out with the rest. They can, Paul's words, they can make us feel uncomfortable. He says, imitate me. Do what I do. Model your life after me. For the Philippians, though, they wouldn't have felt that. And here's why. I think some of that discomfort can be dispelled by realizing that imitation of the teacher or master was a principle held in really high regard when the Philippians were living. And it was widely practiced. So philosophers or moralists, masters of academies, rabbis, as well as religious leaders, um, they were held in high regard, espoused. People wanted to follow them. So Paul was held in that regard. He was revered by the Philippians. And so for him to call them, to imitate him, they would feel honored to do that. They wouldn't have been bothered at all by Paul's assertion. They had great reverence for him. 
Paul's heart here is to direct the people towards Jesus. And we recognize that by his language. He's not saying that he's got all the answers. And it had me thinking a lot about mentorship. Secular mentorship says, do as I do. Whereas Christ-centered mentorship says, let's do as Jesus did together. Some of my greatest mentors have been people who haven't necessarily postured themselves as the model and example for all things, but they've been really, really good at directing me towards Jesus and saying, hey, I'm on this journey too. Let's walk this together. So through verses 18 and 19, Paul gets down to the gritty reality about the threat of alternative examples or models for living that are vying for the, temp- the, the attention of the Philippian church and for us today. So he does this while weeping. He says, I write this in tears. It's almost this parental emotion towards the Philippians. Many scholars, they believe this was the case because the people he's about to address, who he calls the enemies of the cross, were actually people who either at the time or at some point were a part of the Philippian church. So he weeps, he cries because he loves them, calls them enemies of the cross. And he wants us to recognize and resist these uh, enemies of the cross. Here's what we know about them from Paul's words. He says that their destiny is destruction. Paul's like that friend who uh, doesn't really pull any punches. He just says it like it is. That's the most intense thing you could say about someone. Their destiny is destruction. And Paul means it. He knows that there are those who have denied Jesus' cruciform call and instead go on mixing the way of Jesus with the way of the Romans and the culture at the time. And he says there's no life in this that that path, it ultimately leads to destruction, compromising Jesus's call with the Roman standard. Their destiny is destruction. Next, he says, their God is their stomach. Their God is their stomach. Paul, uh, he was writing in Greek at the time, and he uses this word koilia. It, it means stomach, like the literal organ that holds all your good food. But he also, the the word koilea, it also means innermost part, meaning like the soul, this innermost part of who you are. Um, I love how C.S. Lewis touches on this in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And for those of us who are familiar with the story, you know that there's a character who many of us can particularly relate to named Edmund, And when the siblings enter into this mystical realm of Narnia, Edmund has a hard time really trusting and believing that uh, things are how they are presented. So when he's confronted by the evil queen who's ruling Narnia, uh, he stumbles over a little bit of Turkish delight. And here's what C.S. Lewis writes. He says, at last... The Turkish delight was all finished and Edmund 
was looking very hard at the empty box and wishing that she, the queen, would ask him whether he would want some more. Probably the queen knew quite well what he was thinking. For she knew, though Edmund did not, that it was enchanted Turkish delight and that anyone who had once tasted it would want more and more of it and would even, if they were allowed, go on eating till it killed themselves. Edmund's God was his stomach. This insatiable appetite to indulge his innermost soul. And Paul's warning here is that those who make their God their stomach are destined to destruction, like he said earlier, by means of continued indulgence to the point of death. There's this voice out there that the enemy of the cross, the enemies of the cross that they were hearing that says, consume more and more and more and more. It's your right. Eat, drink, and be merry. Care nothing but your innermost soul, your stomach, your appetite. Whatever you're hungry for, just consume. Paul's warning against that. And then finally, he says, their glory is in their shame. What these people thought was bringing them glory is actually bringing them shame. They boast about what is eating them alive. They boast about what is ultimately leading them to destruction. And I think we see that often in our world today. That many of us who are grounded in the way of Jesus. We notice that there are individuals who are celebrating what's ultimately killing them. It's a really sad reality. That's why Paul's crying, because this grieves him, and it should grieve us too. So, what is Paul really saying here? He's saying, hey, identify mature examples to model your life after. And so he, he directs the Philippians towards himself, but he also says there's a community of people around me. He says us, leaders, people that Paul has typically done ministry with and surrounded himself with, that you need to identify mature examples that you can actually model your life after because these mature examples ultimately know that Jesus is the main example. And Paul says this to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11.1. He says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And then he also says, resist these destructive examples who their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, their glory is in their shame. Resist them. Don't fall for it. It reminds me of what's uh, especially going on in the lives of young men in our time. Um, There had been for a while what it seemed somewhat of a void that men felt lost in our culture, young men, adolescents heading into young adulthood. And so somewhat recently, there was the phenomenon of Andrew Tate, who was a young man who 
peddled himself as having all the answers of what living as a man was truly like. But Andrew Tate's answer for manhood or call to manhood was the opposite of Jesus's. It was indulge yourself. It was lord your power over other people. Take advantage of others for your gain. And he even founded an online school in which young men were coming and studying under this man. And it's really sad. This is the kind of stuff that Paul would cry over. Resist destructive examples in your life and embrace mature examples. This is what... um, This is a great quote. This is what G.K. Beale says. He says, we resemble what we revere, either for ruin or restoration. We all revere something or someone. We all model our lives after something or someone. So my question for you is, who... Who or what do you revere? Here's the third sub-theme. And we find it in verses, or we enter chapter 4, and we find it in verse 1. So Philippians 4.1, he says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you who I love and long for, my joy my crown. Stand firm in this way. Stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. Paul follows this difficult word to the Philippians with a word of warmth for the church and a critical reminder. And so first we notice Paul's deep affection for the church. He says, you whom I love and long for. These aren't platitudes or or empty affection. It's this deep pastoral shepherd's heart from Paul to a community that he's actually experienced a lot of life with. As we read through the book of Acts, we know that Paul um, and his partner Silas had been through a lot in Philippi. And with this Philippian church, he cultivated such a deep relationship. And we see it in these words, you whom I love and long for. He's writing this from prison. And you can sense the emotion within Paul, longing to be with his friends. Then he says, my joy and crown. This is like a celebration. Uh, Again, he's referring to this marathon running language. Um, He's saying my joy and crown. It's like something you receive at the end of the race, a ribbon. Saying that's you. And then he says, stand firm in the Lord in this way. What I feel like um, Paul is really saying here is he, as he's referring back to what he has said, he's saying, stand firm in the face and in the current of the culture and complacency. So, like Paul mentioned, there are forces fighting for our allegiance. It's not just complacency, but it's also the culture that we live in. Complacency, indifference, 
a lack of real intentionality or care. This is what Paul is fighting against. He's saying strain towards the goal, fight for it, run the race. Don't just let it happen. And maybe in the room today, you feel like you're fighting against complacency when it comes to your faith and your relationship with Jesus. And I know that this is a battle because it's one that I am fighting. If you literally just talk to my wife, it is a war against complacency in my life right now. It is hard for me to wake up in the morning and open the Bible. It is hard for me to sit down and spend time with Jesus in prayer. It's hard for me to remain soft-hearted as I serve people. I feel like there is this complacency that I'm warring against every single day. And there, in some seasons of my life, the battle has maybe been against pride or being overzealous, but right now it feels like it's a war against complacency. And I don't know if you can relate, but Paul is saying, strain, press on, take this thing seriously, keep moving one foot after the other. Then he's also saying, there's a culture out there, enemies of the cross, a world we live in in which people, they're destined for destruction. Their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame. Um, I feel like there's a story that encapsulate this really well. And um, I first picked up on it from a pastor in New York City named John Tyson, who's a bit of an amateur scholar of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was during World War II, a German pastor, theologian, professor, and eventually martyr. And Bonhoeffer lived in a time in which the Reich was imposing its will on Germany. And uh, what happened was, is that Hitler, he didn't just want political power over Germany, he wanted complete power, and that meant religious power too. And so he began to impose his will on the church in this time. So he did things like only, only ordaining uh, Aryan pastors. And completely removing the Old Testament from all teaching in the church. And so Bonhoeffer, he was noticing what was happening with the church, and he was also noticing how the church began to kind of let it happen, fell into a little bit of complacency. They just stood by as the Reich was imposing its will. So here's what he did. He moved to Poland into the middle of nowhere, and he brought a group of young pastors with him. And he founded a mini seminary called Finkenwald. And, and in this seminary, he began to train pastors to resist and recognize the cultural current that they were in. They began to fast together, pray together, look through the scriptures together, lean on one another, share one another's burdens. Bonhoeffer came through uh, came from a lot of affluence and wealth. And so he had uh, friends and family concerned for him as he left and did this. And so eventually, as he left his professor position and went to Finkenwald, 
after a number of months, his family kind of sent a bit of a, deleg- a delegate to go and talk some sense into Bonhoeffer. And so this friend arrived at Finkenwald, this tiny building in the middle of nowhere, and said, hey, listen, Dietrich, I, I know this is all good and all. Like, I, I love what you're doing, but you've got a really cool professor position back home. Why don't you just come home with me and let's just get back to real life. Let's just, come on, snap out of it. And as the story goes, Bonhoeffer didn't really say much, but he just invited his friend to go on a canoe ride with him. And so they hopped into a canoe and they rode across this lake, small lake, and on the other side of the lake, there was a hill. And so they got off the canoe and they began to walk up the hill. And at the top of the hill, there was a view looking over a whole valley. And there in the valley was a Nazi Air Force base. And they stood and they watched as planes were coming and going and as uh, the Hitler youth were marching in line, stamping their boots, shouting. And they stood there and they looked at the base. They looked back at Finkenwald. And Bonhoeffer said, this is a culture of hate. And then he points back to Finkenwald and he says, this must be stronger than that. Our steadfastness in the way of Jesus, it has to triumph over a culture that is demanding our allegiance every single day. This must be stronger than that. Paul says, stand firm in the Lord in this way. And that's an extreme example. Hitler is long gone. But we know that there are forces today that are demanding our allegiance. So stand firm in the Lord in this way. Here's a final thought for you. And then we'll pray and we'll close. I want us to take us, I want to take us back to verse 20. So if you have your Bibles, feel free to look there. Paul says, we are citizens of heaven. Citizenship. It's a collective language. He says, we do this together with Jesus as the ultimate seat of authority in our lives. We are citizens of heaven. This whole idea of commonwealth or citizenship, it would have been especially meaningful to those in Philippi because there is a high patriotism for for the Roman way of life. And Paul says to the Philippians, he says, we are not a Roman colony as Philippi is. We are a colony of heaven. And the final thought I want to leave with you is this. What would it look like And I really want us to use our imagination. What would it look like to be a colony of heaven in Cowichan? What would it look like? What would it look like to press on towards the goal together, citizens, to run the race together as citizens of heaven? We do this 
all of it, the whole press, the whole race, we do it together with Jesus as the primary seat of authority in our lives because he is worth all of it. So I'd love to take some time to pray together and respond. And the way we can do this is that we can just reflect on what it would look like for us to be a colony of heaven within Cowichan, to be a citizen of heaven in your home. As we pray, we can posture our bodies to receive whatever you're comfortable with. And it might feel uncomfortable to be in the silence of this, but just recognize that those who are beside you are connecting with Jesus as well. I just want to come before the Lord and offer this to him. So let's pray together. Jesus, we just want to leave space for you right now to have the first word. Have your way within us, Lord. Lord, we know that life following you is a press. It's a strain. There's an element of forgetting what's behind and just moving forward and following you. We embrace that this morning. And Lord, we can recognize in our lives that there are forces that are demanding our allegiance and demanding that we follow their example. So we choose instead to follow just simply good examples. Godly men and women. With ultimately you as the ultimate example, Jesus. And Lord, would you help us to stand firm? Just to be solid in our faith that when complacency draws us and lulls us to sleep, or when the culture begins to mold us in its own image instead of yours, Jesus, we would just stand firm. And that as we stand, we would, as it says in Jude one twenty one, keep ourselves in the love of God. That we would stand under the waterfall of your love and your grace. As we head into communion, Lord, we acknowledge that none of this is possible. Standing firm, following you, without the ultimate sacrifice that you made on the cross. That every whip that you bore every curse that was shouted at you, you had us in mind and our freedom to love and worship you. So Lord, as we enter this time, help us to exhale all of that shame that we carry and to really inhale 
deeply your love and your grace. And it's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.